Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Joseph. And guys, not only are you still alive, but you are thriving and vibrant and beautiful, and that is amazing. So can we give it up for Nathan and for Joseph and for Josh, who held it down while we were away? Uh, it is so good to be back. It's, it's probably bittersweet to be back. Uh, sweet because Anna and I have missed you terribly. Bitter because we're not on a Croatian beach right now, all right? And I blame you for that. I'm just gonna be real. <laughs> um, but seriously, it is good to be back. Uh, if you're first time here, thanks so much for joining us. Russ, I'm one of the pastors. Um, one quick plug, I know there are a lot of plugs there. One more quick plug. Next Sunday is a great Sunday to be here at Hope Brooklyn. We have a lot of new stuff that we're gonna be rolling out. One, we're starting a new sermon series. Can I get a, what, what, for a new sermon series? Yes. Uh, we're finishing up a subversive church today. We're starting a new sermon series. I'm not even gonna tell you what it is. You'll have to find out next Sunday. Um, we're actually introducing someone new who's gonna be joining our team, uh, a guy named Bryant Nam um, from Hopi's Queens. So we're gonna be introducing him. Uh, it's really exciting. We have a new announcement for stuff that's gonna be happening this fall in relation to community being formed. So that's gonna be great. And we're introducing a new technology that's gonna be focusing on our sermon series in a way that we can sort of connect more. So lots of new stuff. Um, so if you're in town, definitely be here and bring a friend. It's gonna be really, really cool. Okay, guys, we're finishing a subversive church today. We have been, I know, we have been over the last couple months looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, um, asking questions of how Paul is attempting to subvert this new group of Jesus followers, subvert their understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and perhaps um, expose ways that they look more like their city, their surrounding location, than they look like Jesus. And in the process, it's kind of like, it works on multiple levels because as he's subverting them, the whole idea is that they become a subversive community to their wider society. Um, and we're finishing that today. We are reading chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, the last chapter. So if you have your Bibles um, or your smartphones, pull those out. We're also gonna have it on the screen right behind us. Um, and this is how Paul closes out his letter. This is what we read. Now about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Now, if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Now, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. 
for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. About our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He's quite unwilling as of now to go, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith. Be people of courage, be strong. Everything you do, do in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Achaia is Greece. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you then, brothers and sisters, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such people deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not have love for the Lord, a curse be on them. Come, O Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ, excuse me, in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray real quick. Lord, we, uh, we come to the end of a letter, a letter that uh, Paul wrote, not thinking anyone other than the Corinthians would ever read it, but you have preserved it in your wisdom and in your knowledge to teach your church um, your ways, to teach your church, to teach those who are learning what it means to call you Savior and Lord and King, to teach us um, how to live in this world, to teach us what love really is. And so we just ask as we finish today that you would reveal yourself to us, reveal your name to us, um, and we love you. It's in your name. Amen. Now, at first glance, no one ever reads the last chapter of letters, right? It seems very perfunctory. It seems formal. It seems tidy. He's just tying up loose ends. And in a sense, that is true. But in another sense, he's remaining a pastor at heart. And therefore, what he's talking about is in line with everything he's been doing the entire letter. And we know this because embedded right in the middle of this chapter is his thesis that he's been trying to impress upon the Corinthians from the start. Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Let everything you do, everything you're about be done in love. He's been revealing from the start, Paul has, that the Corinthians really don't understand love, not the type of love that Jesus embodies. And I would say, to make it personal, that I don't really understand love, not the type that Jesus embodies. They have been uh, exposed as contentious and quarrelsome. They've been obsessed with their spiritual state. They've obsessed over which leader will get them the furthest. They've boasted in their freedom in Christ to do whatever they want. They've been sexually expressive in very selfish ways. They've attended parties and they've gone with the flow, not from love for others, but from a sense of indulgence, indulgent spirituality. They've eaten the Lord's Supper as if it were a normal dinner party where the rich are honored and the poor are dishonored. They've argued over whether prophecy or speaking in tongues means they're holier than the others. Through it all, Paul's been revealed 
revealing as a pastor does, here are the ways where you are not living in love. And what is love? Well, we saw that in the very beginning, uh, chapter one, where Paul says, Jews demand signs, Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. What is love? Love is the creator God who humbles himself and comes in flesh into the world, who gives up his glory, comes in flesh, lives a life that doesn't make any sense to the surrounding culture, lives the most compelling life we've seen, heals, preaches, um, eats with social outcasts. He really just mixes things up. Does that is such a threat to the powers that be that he is crucified, he is executed to be done away with, accepts that willingly, accepts that execution for the sake of love, is raised to life again, not resuscitated as Joseph said, but resurrected into a new transformed body. And because he's alive, therefore life is offered to everyone, wherever they are, simply by accepting the invitation, not getting your life together, not getting your life straight first, but accepting the invitation, we are given the gift of life with him. This is love. And if you were with us a couple weeks back, we, we talked about the Greek word that is used for love is agape. And the best way to define agape love is sacrificial commitment. The type of love embodied in God, when we see God is love, the type of love that Paul is advocating for the Corinthian church and for us is love that is sacrificially committed to others. So let all that you do be done in that love. And like a good pastor, rather than keep it ambiguous, he sort of brings up some practical areas. And so that's what I'm going to do today. It doesn't really have, today's sermon's not really a, uh, a, a, um, cohesive, not cohesive, not a unified singular thesis, but just a couple areas um, for our own cultural moment where we could learn to exercise that kind of love. So the first one, love and money, love and money. I know what you're thinking, Russ, you just came back from your honeymoon and you're going in. Yes, I, it's, I, you know, what am I supposed to do? I got new energy, love and money. Um, if you've been with us, we've, we've talked about money before, but I probably haven't talked about it as boldly or as clearly as you see it in, in the Bible. And the reason why is very obvious. I mean, we all know it. It's, it's because um, there have been abuses. There have been abuses done in the name of the Lord surrounding these, these promises surrounding the ways that God advocates for his people to relate with their possessions. And recently, uh, our network of churches, I don't know if you know this, but Hope Brooklyn is part of a wider network of churches called Hope Church NYC. And we were meeting with this pastor um, who has a tremendous story. He pastors a church in sort of uh, lower Manhattan. And he has a tremendous story. And he was talking about his own understanding because he came out of a church um, that was very much... Uh, or at least spent time in church that was very much the prosperity gospel type thing. Like you give to God and God's gonna make you really rich type thing. And, um, and that really hurt him as it hurts many of us. Uh, but in his own evolution, he learned that the, the problem is that he was throwing out the baby with the bathwater in a lot of ways. See, the problem is that these, these promises that God has for his people about how we relate with our possessions, they are true promises. 
They are true promises of that if we make God our security, he provides in really abounding ways. And so he was talking about, you know, and these are his words. He's like, well, those people who extort, you know, uh, uh, Christians, they're going to burn in hell. His words, not mine. But the promises are still true so far as I can see. And that was really freeing of like, okay, there is a way to separate the abuse that's been done from what God promises us for those who make him our trust and our hope. So a couple little things about uh, what scripture does have to say about our possessions. And when we say about possessions and money, you know, I think many times we can get this idea in our head of like Ebenezer Scrooge, like counting his coins. And, and that's not at all what's going on. It's rather just talking about how we get by in the world, right? We're just talking about, and, and for, for a society to work, we have to have a standardized currency that allows us to get by. So in Israel's time, it was animals and it was clothing. Um, and, and for our time, it's this standardized monetized uh, value. But it's just really talking about how we are to get by in the world. Well, the interesting thing about scripture is when you look at Jesus's words, as one scholar found, 25% of them have to deal with possessions. One out of every four words of Jesus when he was teaching had to deal with our possessions. There are over 500, or sorry, there are 500 verses on faith throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. There are 500 on prayer, and there are 2,000 on wealth and possessions. In fact, it's been pointed out by scholars that the scripture, Old and New Testament, speaks more about possessions than it does about love, <laughs> interestingly. But of course, if we think about it, it's maybe it's not that interesting. It makes sense, right? Because we almost know what we love by how we relate with our possessions, right? By how we spend money, we know what we value. Um, it reminds me of G.K. Chesterton's line where he goes, I'm convinced this is why Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say love humanity as yourself. Why? Because humanity is everybody, which means humanity is nobody which means it's this general abstract idea. I can decide who humanity is. And probably if I decide who humanity is, they're gonna look a lot like me. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor is someone very tangible. Your neighbor has quirks and foibles and political opinions that are probably different than your own. That's the person. That makes it much more real. It's the same idea. We don't need to talk about love. Love is this abstract idea. Love is very general, love is a theory. But if we talk about our possessions and how we relate with them, then we get into the heart of what our hearts value, what our hearts love. And a short history, a short history of what God advocates for his people, both Israel and the church. Uh, and the short history is basically this, 10% of Israel's yield, of Israel's income off the top goes to God. That's, what, that's the principle. And that off the top, unfortunately, is really important. It is, why? Well, in order to explain that, we go back to Genesis 4, one of the earliest uh, examples of offerings, Cain and Abel. Maybe you've heard this story. They're two brothers. <clears throat> They're bringing their offering to God. Uh, Cain, he has fruits and vegetables. That's what he does. He works the land. Abel has flocks. Abel brings the best sheep, as it's called. He brings his, the best of his flocks. Cain, on the other hand, brings uh, the, the last 10%. He, 
he brings the grapes that are going to be turned into really bad wine. The grapes are going to become too buck chuck, all right? Um, so that's what he brings to God. And we're told that God rejects Cain's offering and accepts Abel's. Why? Because Abel brought the 10% off the top, the best 10, the first 10. Cain sort of used the best and then that 10% that he have left, had left over, that's what he brought to God. In the New Testament, we see the exact same thing. We see uh, Paul advocating for the first 10%, the first, um, the first yield. So he says, on the first day of the week, let each put aside and save whatever he earned. He didn't say, pay your bills first and then whatever you have left over, then bring that. On the first day of the week, put it aside. And I know, friends, I do. I'm, I'm with you in this. There are probably fears that are filling your heart. Like, ah, if I do this, then my budget's not going to be met. And you're right. <laughs> you're right. To participate in this view of how you get by in the world is to be made extremely uncomfortable. It is. Because it's irresponsible. Like you really can't explain how this is financially wise. It's not. You're entrusting that God knows what you need. And more than that, that God is your security and will provide. And as both Joseph and Josh said, you're not entrusting in an intellectual way. You're not intellectually affirming that God is your provider. You're taking a step that is really radical, that is really hard, really difficult, and saying that if God doesn't come through, I don't know what's gonna happen. And so this guy, this pastor that we've been working with, um, he, he shared his story and it was insane. And I just wanna share it for us. And just so you know, this is something that Anna and I are still working on, on trying to figure out what it means to really step into faith like this. But he, he shares his story about when he wanted to try this. He wanted to see if the promises of God were true. And so uh, the church he was a part of was doing this, this campaign. It was an 18-month campaign. And so he and his wife, they, they just gotten married and they were praying and they wanted to participate. And they really wanted to test God in this. And so they decided on how much what were they going to pledge? Um, over 18 months, they, de they determined that they would, uh, their earning potential was about $100,000. And he shared all these details. $100,000. They decided that over the next 18 months, they wanted to pledge $50,000. Not one five, five zero. <laughs> they shot past that 10%. That's what they wanted to pledge. Now, they had $20,000 in savings, he said. Um, and they were essentially going to test God in this. This is what they felt called to. Now, here's the thing that we do. When we step into this, when we realize that our budget's gonna have to change, we start thinking through, okay, how is God gonna come through, right? We start thinking through what are the other alternative revenue streams by which God promises that he will provide for us such that we don't, we don't want. And there were three that he said. There were three at the time when they sort of stepped into this. They're like, okay, we could see God coming through this way. One, he worked for a job that was about to have... Um, a tremendous merger or deal. And so there was a possible bonus that would come through. So he's like, okay, I could see God sort of making up our need, our lack through that. He also had applied to law school and he thought, okay, this could be a way. If I get into law school and there's some sort of scholarship attached to this, maybe it would work. And he was in talks with a friend who was an editor um, who was possibly working on a book deal for them. 
Um, and so if you got a book deal, there might be a cash advance. So those are the three ways that as they stepped into this, they're like, this is how we could see God coming through. So they start writing a check. Every month, they wrote a check for $2,777. He says, I will never forget that number. Wrote a check every month. Three months into the commitment, his company folded and he lost his job. Two months later, his editor friend that he was talking with um, decided to leave the industry abruptly and therefore he was not getting a book deal. There goes that one. And then one month later, he got a letter from the law school. He had been rejected from it. So just quick recap. <laughs> they had been stepping into this really irresponsible view of listening to God, trusting God, testing God, and all the three possible ways that in his head he's thinking God could come through did not materialize. And he goes, that was a really dark night after he got that letter. He and his wife, they stayed up a long time yelling, <laughs> crying, wondering, have, did we miss here? Were we ridiculous? What do we do? And as they prayed, they felt like they should continue on with this pledge that somehow God was trying to teach them something. So they did. They, they kept writing that check each month. Um, fast forward another 12 months to the, to the end of the campaign. And obviously there's more details going on. And they wrote the last check. Uh, they had totally obliterated their savings. Um, they, they had, as he says, it was not a glorious finish. We limped to the finish line. We were emotionally, financially, uh, like spent wondering, well, great, thanks God, <laughs> this was fun. Sent the final check, bringing the total that they had given over the last 18 months to $50,000. Now, one little detail, over the course of those last 12 months, for whatever reason, he had decided to apply to law school again. He doesn't know why. He, just, he didn't change his application at all. No new reference letters, no new test scores, no new essays. He just sent the application back, utterly unchanged. Well, the same month that he sent his last, uh, they sent their last check-in, he got a letter from law school. He had been accepted to law school, the same one he was rejected from last year. Also, he was at the top of his class and he was gonna receive a scholarship. Can you guess how much? $50,000. Recap. Last year is rejected, next year with nothing changing, gets accepted and gets a $50,000 scholarship, which could seem like, eh, that number is a little coincidental, or it could not. Um, fast forward a month or two later, he receives an email out of the blue from family uh, who is, was doing estate planning for a relative that had recently passed that had left money and inheritance for them. They didn't know that. So they're gonna receive a check in the mail. And guess how much? $50,000. Fast forward a little bit later. By this point, he had left law school. He's pastoring a church in New York. He receives an email from a friend. Well, I'm sorry, not a friend. He receives an email from a literary publisher who was a friend of the original literary publisher uh, that he was working with. He had no idea, but this original friend who had left the industry had continued to advocate for him. So he receives an email from this new literary publisher who had read his stuff and wanted to work with him. They had a couple conversations and they decided to give him a cash advance, which for anyone in the literary world and the way the literary world is changing is already like not off, does not happen often. 
and especially for first-time authors. Can you guess how much his cash advance was? $50,000. Now, <laughs> again, recap. Pledge $50,000. They think here are the three ways it's going to come through. It's going to come through uh, through a bonus. It's going to come through through law school. It's going to come through through um, a book deal. Lose all three, and then God comes through later on, back bringing back all three. And just so you know, they don't take that in his story. They don't take that and be like, "Oh, that's great. Thanks. Good for us. Let's invest it." No, 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 no. They've continued to invest and give aggressively and do this over and over and over, such that now the church that they lead in Lower Manhattan Church. Uh, it's, it's about a congregation of 200 people or so, not too much bigger than us. They have a budget of around $400,000 to $500,000, which is pretty modest for New York standards, but they bring in around $3 million a year because he challenges his congregation this way. That other $2.5 million, they just give away. They give to so many organizations and missionaries. And I just think as I consider that, and we are in the same boat with this, in the sense, me as a Christian, you as a follower, of learning what this looks like. There is something that, as it says in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, for the eyes of the Lord run back and forth across the whole earth, searching that he might show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And I know it's terrifying, I do. I really know it's tough to, to, to basically not make God one line in the budget, but essentially to say, I'm putting all my security on you, not sure how you're gonna come through. But I mean, Anna and I would be willing to share our stories of how this has happened and how God continues to test our faith and throw us onto him. And Paul, as he's dealing with this last chapter, it's the same thing. Of like, this is a way that we can cultivate that love. If you wanna know who God is, you wanna test him, you wanna see, are you who you say you are? This is a way, albeit a terrifying way, but it's one way. So Paul deals with love and with our, our possessions. And then he moves on later in, in that chapter and he starts talking about love and the weak. Love and the weak. And specifically, we see that through the young and the old. So he writes in verse 10 and 11, if Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear among you for he's doing the work of the Lord just as I am. Therefore, let no one despise him. Now, for those of you who don't know, Timothy is, is a colleague of Paul's. They are, uh, he works with Paul, but he's a lot younger than the other pastors. Um, and in a separate letter, 1 Timothy chapter 4, that Paul sends to Timothy, he says, let no one despise you for your youth. So he's a lot younger. And so he's talking to the Corinthians saying, this is how you should treat the young among you. Don't despise them. Don't treat them with contempt. They have something to teach you about who God is, about love. And then a couple of verses later, he goes, you know, the members of the household of Stephanus, they were the first converts in Achaia. They have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you to put yourselves at the service of such people. And for those of us who just read this letter, we think back to chapter one, where he says, I baptized the household of Stephanus. So we know that Stephanus is the, the, the elders of the community, that his house were the first who became converts. So basically, Paul is advocating for these Corinthians. He's like, if you want to learn what this kind of love is, this sacrificial commitment, it will be manifested, it will be cultivated through how you treat the young and how you treat the old, aka how you treat the weak in your community. Now, generally, that idea that, that a community should love its weakest members 
that it should love the weak in a society. Generally, that's a radical idea. But I kind of don't want to talk about that today because I think that many of us in this room already know that. We sort of have already learned and we've grown up in a cultural moment where we understand and where we want to take care of the weakest among us. But what I want to talk about is how we go about doing that. So we live in a cultural moment right now where love for the weak is the expectation. What I don't think we realize though is how that's not a self-evident idea. That's a Judeo-Christian idea. It's not self-evident to care for the weak in your society. It's self-evident to care for your own class, to care for your own family. We, Anna and I were just in Rome recently you realize that the peace of Rome, it was not self-evident in Roman society that you should care for the weakest members. No, no, no. If you were weak in society, that was just. That was the fate of the gods. But then you have this guy named Jesus of Nazareth who shows up and he starts saying stuff like this. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. See, in the first century times, um, the the Greco-Roman society of which the church was a part of, you didn't care for the weak among you. You cared for for your own kind, you cared for the strong. There was even a practice called infant exposure, such that if a baby was born with any sort of birth defect, it was just thrown out because it was weak. But then you had this church starting to form around this guy, Jesus, that says, actually, no, that each person, no matter if they're very strong or very weak, each person is worthy of life and of love. And we live in a cultural moment that believes that, but that's not a self-evident idea. So one of my favorite stories uh, in the third century in Rome, when Christians were being persecuted, there was a plague that began to sweep through the Roman Empire. And so everyone freaked out. So anyone who was sick was just discarded. They were left to die. And anyone who had died, they were left unburied. Everyone's fleeing the city, except for the Christians. The Christians stayed around in the city. And the Christians took in the sick and they buried the dead at the expense of their own life. Many of them ended up dying because of it. But you see, that wasn't a natural idea. This was a radical idea from a group of people that believes that there's more to this life than just this life. That, that in a sense, they're already dead. Because Jesus is dead and alive and because they dwell with him, they have nothing to hold on to in this life. They can enter into it joyfully. They can take care of the sick because they're not holding on to this life. But interestingly, in our own day and age, I think we get that, sort of. We get this idea that we should care for the weakest among us. What I wanna talk about though, is how we do it, how we live in this cultural moment. One of the worst things to do on your honeymoon is to turn on your phone. And the reason why, is because when you're not dwelling in this digital world and then you turn it on and there's headlines and there's social media posts and there's all sorts of videos that are just doomsday apocalyptic in tone. Um, I've been listening to this podcast, which I'm gonna talk more about, and, and trying to understand the relationship between 
reality, this world that we live in, but also this digital world that we exist in. It's sort of their overlap. And this guy says, uh, this podcast says, that this digital world, a great way to understand it in the West, it's our digital nervous system now. That it's the nervous system of, of the Western body that it sort of gives information. And he says it's a nervous system riddled with anxiety, riddled with hopelessness. That in this digital world, the tenor and the tone of the language is incredibly hopeless, incredibly um, condemning, incredibly aggressive, um, and fatalistic. And so what, what's fascinating about this podcast, what I really loved is they was talking about this, this um, missionary named Leslie Newbegin. And he was breaking up, and Leslie Newbegin was a British missionary who went to India and then came back to England and realized that England had changed. And so he divides up um, sort of the landscape into three tiers. You have a pre-Christian society, as he calls it. You have a Christianized society. No such thing as a Christian society, he says, because we won't have a fully Christian society until Christ dwells with us. But you have a, a society that looks Christianized because it has certain values, certain structures that are pursuing that, like loving the weak. And then you have a post-Christian society. And as we know, in our own cultural moment in the West, we're living in what's becoming and, and is, in a lot of ways, a post-Christian society. But what's interesting about a post-Christian society, he says, and what we have to understand, is that when you move past that Christianized vision and you become post-Christian, it's not like you go back to pre-Christian existence. No, you still have values and structures that were birthed out of that Christian moment. But now what's different, even though you have these same structures, you don't have the same um, worship of, of the king in these structures. So as Stanley Hauerwas puts it, God becomes superfluous to the formation of a world of peace and justice. Or as they put it in the kingdom, what's going on in the post-Christian society is we want the kingdom without the king. We want the kingdom without the king. We want a society that takes care of the weak. We just don't want a society that does that because Jesus, the king, says this is the way you live. We want to do it because it's the right thing. And what Newbegin uh, wrote, and this was back in the 70s, what he said is when that happens, when we move into this post-Christian environment where we want the kingdom without the king, what's going to happen is that politics will become the new religion. Talk about being prophetic. Politics will become the new religion because we still want the, the, the king's vision. We want the vision of the kingdom. We just don't want the king to fill it. So we need a reason for why to fill it so that politics become the new religion. So we don't have religious wars anymore. Now what we have are political wars with a vision of the kingdom, a vision of utopia that we think once our vision is realized, then we'll be there. And so, you know, when we turned on our phone, Anna and I, and we sort of heard and we hadn't been in touch with everything that was going on with the southern border. And we sort of saw and heard all this outrage from everyone, from both sides and from Christians involved. And hear me, the outrage is good. The outrage is good. But what was interesting is that implicit in the tone of the outrage was almost this idea that America should be better than this, right? Like this outrage of America should be better than this, of which I humbly want to ask the question, especially the Christians, why? 
Why should America be better than this? America's not the church. America was not given the Holy Spirit. America is not the foretaste of the kingdom. We are the foretaste of the kingdom. And as it's been pointed out by commentators, when you sort of pull back from our cultural moment to the wider history of this country and even the wider global history of which Anna and I were in Rome at the time, you realize that this isn't new, ripping families apart. That's precisely what, what we did during slavery, that it is a unspeakably cruel, cruel action of which we as followers of Jesus need to step into and say, no, we can't, we can't abide by this. But it's not new. And, you know, it's cruel, but it's a absolute way to get what you want, <laughs> to de deter people. But in this tone, in this tone of outrage, there was this idea that if America could just get her immigration policy right, then we'd be saved. Then we'd be in utopia. And substitute immigration policy. If America could just get her political vision right, then we'd be saved. If we could just get our economic vision right, our entertainment, our technological vision right, then we'd be saved. But what Newbegin was saying is in a post-Christian environment where you still have the structures of a Christianized system, they start to crumble. And they crumble because we want the kingless kingdom. We want the kingdom without the king. And these structures of which we've placed our hope in, but not subjecting them to the lordship of Jesus, begin to fall and tumble. And so in our own day and age, our political discourse has been totally corrupted by this bullying voice. Both sides are going further and further and further apart with polar visions. And they're absolutely sure that if their vision was realized, then the kingdom would come. We look at the crisis in, in Wall Street and economics. No one trusts it. We look at um, the whole exposing of the entertainment industry and the sexual assault and everyone's shocked. And even the last idol to fall recently has been Silicon Valley and our tech industry. You know, over the last 15 years, when it first emerged, we talked about how the opportunities, the possibilities of tech. And now the whole thing with Facebook and information and, and metadata, we're realizing, oh goodness, they're falling in our eyes too. And so everywhere we look, there's sort of this crumbling of these structures. Why? Because it still has the image in a lot of ways of the kingdom. It just doesn't want the king to fill it. So there's this hopeless tone pervading our discourse and pervading Christians. And this is a moment, friends, for us to say, hey, let me tell you why you want to love the weak. That's a great idea and we should join into that. But let me tell you why our vision of the kingdom without the king isn't working. Many of you, you might've heard of the name Augustine. Augustine was a theologian in the third and fourth century of Rome at this period of time when Rome was starting to fall. Rome was called the eternal city. As we learned from a Rick Steves audio guide, for 500 years, Rick Steves does some good stuff, by the way. Uh, for 500 years, Rome was, was growing, it was building. And then for 300 years, it plateaued. It was in its, its heyday, and then it's, or for 200 years, sorry. And then for 300 years, it started to fall. So Augustine was on the tail end of that. And he was living in a time when Rome was falling all around. 
and everyone was freaking out. Everyone was saying, what is going on? And even Christians were beginning to freak out, saying, what's going to happen when Rome falls? And so he wrote this really famous book called The City of God. And he goes, look, let's get it clear. There are two cities in place. There's the city of man. And there's the city of God. And they overlap in places, but don't get it twisted. When the city of man falls, the city of God still remains. Our hope is not in the city of man. Our hope is in the city of God. And and therefore, we are able to work in the city of man with all our energy and all our love and all our hope. But not because we think that the city of man is going to get it right, finally but because that's what our king advocates for. So this is the opportunity for us as followers of Jesus to join into this work, but in a way that says, I'm not joining into this work because I hope we finally get it right. Because I hope we finally establish the kingdom. I'm joining into this work because Jesus is already king. I'm joining into this work because my hope is in him, because we are the foretaste of the kingdom. And so let all that you do, says Paul, be done in love. Be done with that sacrificial commitment. And as it relates to what's going on um, in the southern border, there are, I think it's, what is it? The paralysis or analysis paralysis, that we have so many options and it feels so daunting that it's like, how can we even take a step, right? Well, it starts with little steps in our sphere of influence. So how can we do this? Well, we can love with our money right? One of the great things um, that social media has allowed is these massive campaigns. So you probably have heard the organization Races, which um, uh, offers um, legal support for immigrant families. They've raised over $16 million, which is incredible. Give, right? We just talked about our financial, our relationship with our finances. Offer their love that way. Love through education, (laughs) I think that's one way that would be really countercultural right now. And in a, a day and age where everyone's super loud about everything, what if we loved, what if we channeled that energy and love through learning more? So two ways, Joseph already talked about one, a night sojourn, come to this event, hear people's stories, develop empathy. Another way, I don't know if you know this, on the summer Sabbath, um, Um, whiteboard out there. There's a group, Tracy and Tiffany. They're leading a book group on a book called The Displaced, written by refugees about their stories. Join that book group. Learn what's going on. Love through what, through our education. Love with our time. Uh, Our justice team, we are partnered with an organization called Safe Families for Children. And I know there's a couple of us in this room that partner with it. We got an email just this last week. Safe Families for Children essentially connects people in New York with families that are at risk, um, that, need, that need friendship in most, most cases. Safe Families for Ch- Children, 40% of their families um, are immigrant families. Love with your time. Join. Contact Alicia. These are little ways that we can step into this work. And lastly, love with hope. Love with hope in Jesus. Because how we go about loving the weak is just as important in this cultural moment as actually doing it. And that's where I want to end and invite the band back up. 
recently uh, some of our staff were at an event with a poet named Christian Wyman. And he said this in passing, but it absolutely pierced us. He was talking about, because obviously he's a poet, his, his job is with words. And he's talking about how he feels overwhelmed with can't. He feels overwhelmed with the language of can't. And he goes, there's rotten language everywhere. Everywhere it feels like where we turn, there's language of hopelessness and bullying. And it's just can't, can't, can't. Everything's falling. And what if for us, a way that we can step into this cultural moment is to join into the work, but with the language of hope. Not that our Western society finally gets it right, though we're gonna work the hope it does, but because Jesus is Lord and our hope is in the city of God, not the city of man. We titled this series, A Subversive Church. And the idea throughout is that the church by being itself is subverting the world. So as Stanley Hauerwas writes, the first task of the church is not to make the world more just. The first task of the church is to be the church. For only then might the world know that it's the world. What's he saying? He's saying the first task of us as followers of Jesus is not to make America a more just place. The first task for us is to practice justice among ourselves. The first task for us is to be that just kingdom, which can only come about when Jesus is Lord, when Jesus is fully in charge. Because only then, when we start creating that type of community, will we look even a little different to the society that's wondering why we can't figure this out. That's having its structures falling all around. And what if... What if one of those ways, if we're loving with our money, if we're loving with education, if we're loving with our time, and if we're loving with hopeful language, hopeful language in Christ, what if we're saying it's not working because you want a kingless kingdom? The kingdom's true and that's awesome and we're joining you in that. But we're joining you in that because we know who the true king is. And we know that our hope is all in his city, which is coming and beginning right here among us. What if America, New York City, Brooklyn saw that type of community that was active, that was educated, that was working, and that was hopeful? Wouldn't that be a subversive community? <laughs> Wouldn't that be a subversive church? And so with Paul, we finish this and we step into it with his words, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all of you. My love be with all of you. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for your patience. I pray that we would hear your voice right now inviting us to consider where our hope is. Is our hope in you? Is our hope somewhere else? That you're not saying that we stop joining you in your work. That you're not saying that we stop loving with what you've given us and with our time. You're not saying that at all. 
but how can we join in in a way that says our hope is not that this world will finally get it right. Our hope is in this community that you're establishing because you are Lord here. You are king here. Our hope is in the kingdom that yields itself to the true king who you are. We're scared. We're nervous. We don't know how to do that. But would you pour out your Holy Spirit would you allow us, would you, would you give us a single step? Give us a place where we can move into it, where we can encourage one another, where we can invite, where we can worship you. Would you make us that subversive church? Would we be known by our love and how we love? That sacrificial commitment. We can't do it without you, Lord. And so we say, come. Come and fill us. Come back soon. Put all things right. Give us courage. Give us courage, Lord. Be God. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you, Lord. It's in your name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.